You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I would like to begin by calling in the spirits to join us here today. So I call out to your ancestors and to mine. I call out to all of those who bring that which is good and true and beautiful in our ancestral lines to us. I call out to those who lived well and died well and those who stand behind us, those who are here to assist us, the living, in doing what we have come here to do. And I call out in particular to those ancestors that lived in the time of the changing of a world here on this beautiful planet. I call out to those ancestors who understand the importance of being the gatekeepers between worlds and helping the living to write a new story for the people so that that great arc of life that emerges is different than the story that was written before. So I call out to these ancestors to be with us here today and I ask them to gather around and to help us. Help us to do what the living are destined to do in their small, small period of time here on the planet. And so with the ancestors gathered around in great gratitude, let us turn our awareness from our heads to our hearts and draw our consciousness from our hearts down into our bellies and from our bellies down into the earth. And as you imagine or feel or sense your energy touching the earth, let us take this moment to give thanks, to give great heartfelt gratitude for this day, for your life, for the great blessing and the miracle that is life. Thanks for the beauty. Thanks for the diversity. Thanks for all of those many gifts your life has given you. You haven't yet figured out how to open those that came disguised as problems or crises or predicaments, they are all gifts. And we give great thanks to the earth for the richness of her dreaming that brought life as we experience it to this planet. And so with great, great gratitude to the earth, we extend our energy down through all the layers of the earth, giving gratitude as we go until we reach the center of the earth. And as we connect to the center of the earth and begin to draw the energy of the earth up, we invite into our bodies the energy of restoration and replenishment, the energy that allows us to ground and to have a sense of home, a sense of hearth, a sense of connection and belonging. And we call up the energy of the earth and invite into our day the wisdom of manifestation. How can we be here in form in a good way for all living things? And as we draw up the energy of the earth into our bodies, into our proceedings here today, into the day itself, we ask the energy of the earth to help us to feel connection within ourselves and with others, the interconnection of things, connection with our environment and connection with the spirit world and help us come into right relationship in all these many layers of connection and interconnection until we feel perhaps in this day that moment, that moment of oneness And may we draw from that sense of our place in the great oneness of all things, right relationship with ourself and everything else. 
So with the energy of the earth rising up like a fresh, crystal clear spring of water into ourselves and into our day, let us draw that energy up from our bellies to our hearts, our hearts to our minds, and up and out through the sky by whatever energy, whatever weather, whatever the sky holds for you, move out through the sky, out through the cosmos, and out into the nether reaches of the above land. And we reach all the way up to the highest power of the universe. And by whatever name you know that energy, uh, reach out to it, connect with it, and to call it down. And draw down into our, yourself, into our proceedings, into your day. Draw down the energy of blessing. And draw down the energy of protection, benevolence, the beneficence of our universe, and great generosity and devotion. We call these energies in, into our mind, into our heart, into our belly. And we take a moment and feel, imagine, visualize the meeting of those two great lovers, heaven and earth, yin and yang, coming together within us in the big love from which all life as we know it emerged. And so we give such thanks for that great dance within us. And we invite our heart to awaken, awash in the big love. And may the heart awaken for the crucible that it is, special and unique in its ability to call up the fiery passions of the belly that hold in them our destiny. And call down the crystal clarity of the mind that helps us figure out how the hell am I going to do it? And we let those energies dance in the heart each together in a dynamic tension that gives forth that third energy. Why are you here? What are your gifts? And may you find in your heart true courage to do something in this day to bring your gifts into the world. So we give thanks for the spirit energies gathered round. We ask that what needs to be said be said here today and what needs to be heard be heard and that these proceedings go forward in a good way for all living things. And so I also want to give special thanks to the people that make this show possible. Why Shamanism Now is entirely listener supported and I give thanks to those of you who are able to donate financially to the show. I give thanks to Patricia and Duane, to Nakaya and the Last Mass community for um, that which they've donated uh, since the last time we were together. And I give thanks to all of you who are able to donate and for those who are not and do something to support the show to link to your websites, to connect shows to other people, to talk about these things in your journey circles, to email me with questions, with ideas for the show, all the many things that you can think of to help the show grow strong, to help it to stay relevant, and to stay useful in your lives. And I give great gratitude to all of you. And remember always that there is someone out there listening who cannot donate and is deeply grateful that you can because the teachings are helping them to change their lives and you are making that possible. So I give thanks for those people as well. So for all of you, if this show moves you in any way to inspiration or uh, frustration, it doesn't matter. You have been moved in the heart and this is the essence of shamanism. That power is mediated in the heart and so let your heart motivate your actions and do something to help us to grow strong. So thank you all very much. So, oh, for those of you that don't know, there is a new website, same address, new um, stuff. 
at whyshamanismnow.com and you are still able to donate through the um, Why Shamanism Now donate link. Um, any amount, large or small, and every um, ruble, penny, euro, or whatever is donated um, is deeply appreciated. It all goes directly to keeping the show on the air. So thank you. So today's show, the topic of today's show is the bowl of light, and our guest is Hank Wesselman. Welcome, Hank. Hey, thanks, Christina. You really covered the bases there. (laughs) (laughs) I I do my best. (laughs) So for those of you, as I like to say, who've been sleeping under a rock and don't know, uh, actually, no pun intended about sleeping under a rock with Hank. Anyway, Hank is a paleoanthropologist, among many things, who first encountered traditional shamans in his field work exploring eastern Africa's Great Rift Valley in search of answers to the mystery of human origins. (laughs) And Hank has continued in this search ever since. Um, He is an author, teacher, and shamanic practitioner now in his 30th year of his apprenticeship. Uh, The popular and well-known books in his autobiographical trilogy, Spirit Walker, Medicine Maker, and Vision Seeker, have been published in 13 languages and reveal the nature of his initiation into the shaman's world of mystery and magic. Hank is also the author of many other books. One is The Journey to the Sacred Garden. He is also co-author with his wife, Jill, uh, uh, of two books, The Spirit Medicine um, and Spirit Walker Teachings, and is co-author with Sandra Ingerman of the award-winning Awakening the Spirit World. Um, Hank lives with his family on their farm in Hawaii, lucky guy, Um, and his new book, The Bowl of Light, gives us a privileged look into the mind of an authentic Hawaiian kahuna mystic, um, Haley Makua, and provides us with the insights at the end of the cycle of the ages and the beginning of the next. So for those of you that want to find Hank on the internet, he can, his work, um, uh, classes, um, events, es- essays, etc., can be found at sharedwisdom.com. S-H-A-R-E-D-W-I-S-D-O-M, sharedwisdom.com. And you can email Hank at hank at sharedwisdom.com. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. This show is also sponsored by the Society of Shamanic Practitioners, and we give thanks for their continuing sponsorship. This is part of their interview series, and they can be found at shamansociety.org. We are live this week, so if you have questions about the show's topic, you are invited to call in at 512-772-1938. You can Skype in from the co-creatornetwork.com site, or you can just email me at Christina at lastmaskcenter.org, and I would be happy to read your question on the air. So, Hank, thanks again for joining us here today. Um, I usually ask people at this point in the show what the pivotal moments are that brought them to their work, but you've so beautifully documented those moments in your Spirit Walker trilogy. That seems a little bit redundant. So uh, I'm going to tell people, go buy the books. And for today, what I'd like to ask you instead is, would you share with us how you came um, into the teachings or how you met um, Haley Makua? How did you come into contact with this teacher? Well, you know, Haley Makua was like, um, he was very much like the Dalai Lama of Polynesia in the sense that everybody in Polynesia knew him because of his exceptional genealogy. On his father's side, he was a direct descendant of High Chief Keiwa, on his mother's high chief, Kamehameha, who became the king. And so in Polynesia, where genealogy defines you, it defines your mana, your power, your ike, your spiritual knowledge. 
You know, he was really without peer. Um, we were drawn into connection with him in 1996 after Spirit Walker came out. A friend of ours had sent him the book, and he read it. And I was giving a talk at an institute on the Big Island called the New Millennium Institute, which at that time was housed in a Frank Lloyd Wright house up in Waimea on the Big Island. And on that day, and there were about 50 people who showed, here, showed up to hear what I had to say. You know, this, I really found this interesting because before I published a book, you know, nobody cared what I had to say. But once you publish a book, people care what you have to say. So on that day, I was going to talk about the transformational community or what I sometimes call the modern mystical movement and the beliefs, values, and trends that we all hold dear. You know, as an anthropologist, this is something which has been in my consciousness for a long time, and I'm constantly updating it. Uh, but, you know, on that day, I was going to give a rather academic talk, and just before I, I started to talk, the door opened, and in walked this big Hawaiian man. Now, I'm six feet tall, and Holly Mako was easily head taller than I am, uh, with a big beard down his chest and a big ponytail down his back and a flashy aloha shirt and a carved walking stick. And he arrived with four or five other Hawaiian men, all of them with beards and ponytails, and they brought their wives. That was a very good sign, Christina, because I knew that I wouldn't be turned into a pillar of salt, at least not that day. Well, you know, when I published Spirit Walker, I was aware of the fact that I was publishing information about the Kohuna mystic tradition. And you know, and I know, that indigenous people are not all that wild about outsiders trespassing into their spiritual traditions, especially anthropologists. So I knew that at some point they'd send in somebody to look me over. And this was the day. Now, I was a little bit nervous, to say the least, because this wasn't just any kahuna who'd come to hear me talk. This was the big kahuna. All right. I'd heard about this guy for years, but I'd never met him. And nobody in the room had ever met him either. So, you know, he sits down with all of his, his uh, men and, and their wives across from me, and I launch into my talk. I might add that, like you did, I made a small prayer before I talked for, you know, knowledge, for wisdom, for protection, for power, and, and speaking truthfully and well. And this did not escape his notice. He noticed this. So, you know, I launched into my talk, and I talked for about an hour and a half, which I can do because I'm an academic. You know, that's what I used to do for a living. And, you know, at the end of it, you know, I began to get this pulling sensation. Uh, we all know what that feels like when something is trying to get your attention. And I got this feeling that he had come to say something to me. Now, I didn't know what the protocol was. And addressing indigenous elders, protocol is everything. You've got to get it right. And so I looked at Makua. People called him Makua. That's what people called him. And I said, uh, Makua, you know, I'm aware of the fact that, you know, as an indigenous elder, there's protocol, and I don't know of the correct protocol and how to address you, but I'm getting this feeling that there's something that you have come to say. Would it be correct for me to ask you to speak? Now, this guy, I watched him do something interesting. I watched him dissociate. He smiled, and then he glanced down, and his face went completely blank for about 45 seconds. And I knew what he was doing. He was checking in with his ancestors. And so when he reemerged, he smiled again and he stood up. Silence in the room. You know, this was the moment of truth. And he looked at me across the room and he said, you know, a friend of mine sent me your book and I read it. And then I read it again just to make sure I got it right. 
And then I took Spirit Walker down to the beach, and I put it down on the sand, and I called in the ancestors, and we had a talk about you. <laughs> now, you know, I have to say that, you know, I was, I was nervous. You know, I was preparing myself to be condemned because, you know, uh, I had trespassed in publishing Spirit Walker. I had published without permission information from the Kohona inner tradition that had come to me. And so he's, he's watching me, and I didn't know it, but he was clairvoyant. He was psychic, and he's reading me like a book. And he smiles, and he says, don't worry. You know, we Hawaiians don't write. We talk, and we share what we find in our hearts with each other. But in your culture, it's the tradition to write books. And so, first of all, I've come here to say to you that the ancestors are very happy with you, and they've instructed me to say that everything you said in your book is true. And we Hawaiians need to support you. Keep spreading the word. You're making my job easy. Well, this came as a shock. You know, I really wasn't prepared for this. And, you know, people in the room were crying because of the emotion of the moment. It was very powerful. I mean, this was like high noon in Polynesia. And it was the beginning of a most interesting friendship that extended over the last eight years of this man's life. And as we engaged in philosophical dialogue and talking about uh, the Kohona tradition of Polynesia, my wife Jill and I and Makua just got closer and closer and closer to each other. And he was in the habit of coming and joining our five-day programs that we did here on the Big Island starting in 1998. He would come as the visiting elder on Tuesday afternoon. And he would hold everybody's attention just riveted for like four or five hours. I mean, people didn't get to get up and have a leak. They were so afraid that they would miss something that he was saying. And they were also aware, of course, that they were hearing information that has never been published and uh, which until the bowl of light hadn't been published. He died in, the, in 2004 after spending the last week of his life with us. And on the night before he passed, we did ceremony for the 20th time, I believe. And, you know, he took me out to his car, and I think he had a premonition that his contract was up. Because he had this big box of yellow pads in the back of his car. And I'd asked him to write a book with me for years, and he always politely declined, because this was not part of his, his responsibility, or as they say in Hawaiian, this was not his kuleana to do this. And so he showed me this box of, of writings, which included all of his handwritten notes across 15 or 20 years. And he said, you know, I'm going to give these to you. You'll know how to take care of them. You'll know how to care for them. He didn't talk about publishing, but he looked at me and he said, you know, I know that you're going to write about me. And he gave me permission that night to share uh, the teachings that he brought forward from his great heart in our workshops, because those were teachings for everyone. And they were not protected by any particular couple or restriction. And so, you know, that night he left, and the following day he was killed in a car accident. Mm. It, was, it was just a shock to everybody who knew him. I had to go and teach at Esalen with Jill the next week. And I'm telling you, that was really arduous to get through that, because a lot of people in the group had met Makua. They'd come out to Hawaii specifically to connect with him. And so it took about five years to get over his death, about five years of mourning. But during that time, something very interesting happened. I was looking at his photograph, which is on the wall in front of me now. It's the photograph which is in the front piece of uh, the bowl of light. And I was working at my computer, and as I looked at him, 
it was like there was a credit card swipe that went through my mind. And suddenly, Makua's energy was inside my field, and his voice appeared inside my head. <laughs> now, as shamanic practitioners, this is a well-known phenomenon to us, but it still startles me whenever it happens, because, you know, it's outside of the scientific paradigm, which I operate in most of the time. And we started to have this conversation like we had in life. Well, in life, I was not allowed to record anything that he said, nor was I allowed to take notes. That would have been disrespectful. I had to tell people in my workshops, don't take notes while Maku is speaking because it's disrespectful. And, of course, this is very hard for Westerners because we're not trained in those um, abilities of memory that indigenous people are trained in. So, you know, here he is talking, and I thought, well, you're on the other side now, you know, and I opened up a, a file on my laptop and started to type. And over the next five years, the bowl of light emerged in response to repeated visitations. And although I would never claim that, you know, he and I wrote that book together, in a way it would not be inaccurate to, to say that because he had a hand in things right from the beginning. And in a way, he's more available now that he's on the other side than he was during life when all of our meetings took place here on the big island of Hawaii. But the book, The, the Bowl of Light, was a, was a labor of love, really, and it, it's quite unique. It, um, I hope my publishing house sent you a copy, finally. Not yet, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, um, maybe, the, maybe the, publicist, the publicist is on vacation or something. Usually they're very good about that. Well, the bowl of light in and of itself is is just one of my favorite nuggets out of um, just the Hawaiian mystical shamanic way of looking at the world. So I was wondering if just just in a little nutshell, a little thumbnail sketch here, you could share, particularly for listeners that might not really be familiar at all with Hawaiian shamanism, for lack of a better way to say it, to just the basic way... Hawaiian people traditionally look at the kahuna system and kind of how it relates and doesn't relate to the way we think about shamanism. Just as kind of a simple version to put new listeners on the map for us before we delve even deeper. Sure. Well, on that first day, Makua looked at me and said, we should have a meeting before you leave the island. Now, when the big kahuna says you're going to have a meeting, you know, you're going to have that meeting. Right. And we had our meeting on the last day of the year, on December 31st, 1996, right on the edge of the crater of Kilauea Volcano, which is on the southeast side of the mountain Mauna Loa. And, you know, on that day, Makua and Jill and I got to know each other slowly, you know, as people do, uh, looking each other over. And one of the things that Makua did is he took Jill to the women's place of power, where women make medicine. And then he took me to the men's place of power, where men make medicine. And while we were there, he explained uh, the story on his walking stick, his carved walking stick. And then he asked me if uh, I had any questions, and I, and I said, well, are you going to call in your ancestors to listen to what we have to say? And he gave me this big smile, because that was exactly what he was going to do. So he began to chant in Hawaiian, right on the edge of this crater, with these white tropic birds sort of knifing through the air around us over our heads. You know, I thought that was very propitious and the huge mass of Mauna Loa behind us that goes up to almost 14,000 feet. And he began to chant. And I watched him as he dissociated. And essentially, he was shamanizing. 
he was using his own body to create a bridge between the personal world of form and the transpersonal world of spirit. And when that bridge was formed, he was inviting his ancestors to utilize that bridge to come into our world. And I could actually literally see him physically shift from one face to another as ancestor after ancestor stepped through him and into our world to be witnesses to our first meeting. That's when I knew he was a shaman. That's why I used the, the subtitle Ancestral Wisdom from a Hawaiian Shaman on the cover of the Bowl of Light. I know that's going to cause some problems for a lot of uh, Hawaiians because they don't use the word shaman. And in fact, most Hawaiians are psychologically Christian. They're either Congregationalist, Catholic, or Mormon. And they're not interested in kahuna wisdom at all. It's, it's, really, it's really very sad in many ways. You know, uh, but the young Hawaiians are, because the young Hawaiians are seeking to reinvent themselves in response to a world which is changing in an unparalleled way at incredible speed. They're trying to reinvent themselves as Hawaiians. And so in a way, I wrote the bowl of light for them as well as for us. But on that day, Makua, after he, he chanted his ancestors, said, now we can talk. And we went to a little picnic shelter that the, that the park service had put up. And he and Joe and I sat, we talked all afternoon about many things, and some of that is recorded in the Bowl of Light. At the end of the afternoon, he went to the back of his pickup truck, and he reached in the back and he pulled out a traditional uh, gift called ho'okupu. It's a, a leafy bundle made from the top of a tea plant uh, in which you cut the stem off. This isn't like tea that you drink. It's a Polynesian plant with big spatulate leaves. And here's this big leafy bundle, and he hands it to us, and he says, gift, makana. And, of course, Jill and I are looking at this gift, and, you know, we're just blown away by everything that's happened to us. And we open it up, and inside is this very simple Hawaiian wooden bowl. And he said something very interesting at that point. He said, you know, each one of us is sourced into life from what you call the higher self. We call it aumakua, our parent in time our utterly trustworthy ancestral spirit. And he said, you know, when we're sourced into life, the Almakua divides itself, and it sends in a bowl of its light, or a seed of light, which takes up residence within us when we emerge from our mother's bodies, and we draw our first breath. The first breath, the divine breath, is what the Hawaiians call the ha, the H-A, the divine breath of life. And actually the word aloha means face-to-face, with the divinity. Alo means in the presence of ha is the divine breath of life. And so he said, you know, we take in this bowl of light that, res that resides within us in our hearts throughout our life, and there it nourishes us and sustains us as we become who and what we're supposed to become. He said at the end of life, when, when we release our last breath, the light leaves and it returns to its source in the upper world. He, said, he looked at the bowl very thoughtfully, and he said, of course, the bowl I'm giving you is symbolic of your own bowl of light. And he said, it's very interesting because whenever we step into the negative polarity in life, whenever we take something that doesn't belong to us or we injure somebody with our words or our thoughts or our deeds, it's like you put a stone in the bowl and some of your light goes out. As an aside, he looked at me and said, you know, the major problem in the world today is that the world is being run by men and women whose bowls of light are filled with stones, and there's no light coming out of them anymore. This is a major problem. 
He said, hopefully we discover what we're doing before it's too late. And he said, you know what you do then? And of course, Jill and I are hanging on every word. And he said, he took the bowl from me and he turned it over and he said, we dump it out. You know, we clear the bowl. This is called kala. This is called cleansing. And of course, he let out this big blast of laughter. He was very fond of laughing and his his conversations were punctuated by incredible bellows of, of mirth. He said, but you know, once we clear the bull, we lead our lives differently then. That's when we become spiritual warriors. Now, he used the word warrior with deliberation because he was in the Marines. He was a military warrior for 20 years of his life and was in five major wars. Beirut was the first and Vietnam was the last, where he did 90 patrols behind enemy lines in point reconnaissance. Here's the six-and-a-half-foot-tall Hawaiian who could become invisible. You know, that's what he did. So um, he looked at me and he said, the path of the spiritual warrior is a very narrow path, and it's constrained by three sacred directives. In Hawaiian, these are called kapus. A directive, you know, something which is sacred, that's kapu. Something which is restricted, that's kapu. A directive, that's kapu. He said, I can talk to you about this because we wouldn't be sitting here talking with each other unless you weren't already on the path. So he looked at me and he said, the first couple of the spiritual warrior is, you must love all that you see with humility. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, easy one first. And he left because he was, he was reading me, you know. And he said, listen, I worked on that one for seven years. We must love all that we see with humility. And this humility is not just a, uh, it's not just a, something that they assume. It's something that they carry all the time. The second, we must live all that we feel with reverence. Reverence. We must live what we feel with reverence. It's what Joseph Campbell meant when he said, you know, if you follow your bliss, you can't go wrong because... You know, it will lead you inevitably towards that which you're destined to become. And your bliss will be the key, your reverence. And for indigenous people, you know, reverence is incredibly important. You know, he said more than once to our groups, you know, the foundation stone for indigenous mind is respect. Whereas the foundation stone for Western mind, which is also the same as colonial mind, The foundation stone for Western mind is dominion, is domination. It's a very different approach to life, don't you think? Yeah. Well, you know, he continued and said, the third couple is that we must know all that we possess, and that includes what possesses us, with self-discipline. He said, this is incredibly important. This is where all the gurus stumble when they lose their self-discipline. And we don't even have to talk about that because all of your listeners know what I'm talking about. But, you know, our path is really uh, to know, to live, and to love with humility, with reverence, and with discipline. And that was really the core of his teachings. The core of his teachings were based in the Polynesian uh, perception of aloha, of love. And, you know, it had to do with the positive polarity versus the negative polarity. If I were to ask you, Christina, (laughs) this is an interesting question, and I'm not going to put you on the spot because I'll answer it. If I was to ask you if aloha love is the positive polarity, what is the negative polarity of aloha? What comes up for you? Uh, Fear, actually. Well, it could be. 
But in fact, the negative polarity of aloha is attraction. Aha. Uh-huh. You know, it's been decades since I looked at a, a Playboy magazine, but is Playboy magazine about love? No, it's about attraction. But you see, the negative polarity, attraction is what brings us together. And you cannot do aloha alone in a room by yourself. It takes two. And so the negative polarity draws us together. And through the lessons that we learn in the negative polarity, it draws us towards the positive and aloha is created. Isn't that interesting that the negative polarity of aloha would be attraction? And then, of course, you can take attraction. Attraction also has a positive and a negative polarity. And this was stuff that he talked about a lot, the law of polarity. For example, the positive polarity of uh, attraction is acceptance. We agree to play the game. The negative polarity is rejection. See, you know, without going uh, political, this is the, 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 the MO of Christianity. Christianity rejects so much because... You know, for some reason, they don't agree to play the game, you know, and the game is incredibly multifaceted. So Makua was this incredible uh, walking library of incredible knowledge. Uh, That last night of his life, he told me that he was going to write down his genealogy. And I said, uh, well, how many generations are there going to be? And he looked at me with great seriousness and said, 1,260. (laughs) Now, yeah, you and I, you know, I mean, we're lucky if we can get past our grandparents to our great-grandparents, all right? He had 1,260 generations of ancestors in his mind, and he knew them, both the men and the women. And I started mentally sort of <laughs> multiplying this out, you know, at let's say 20 years per generation. I said, Makua, that's, that's incredible. That would come out to almost uh, uh, 25,200 years. And he grinned and said, actually, it's closer to 26,000. Mm-hmm. And of course, twenty six thousand is the cycle of ages that we have mm-hmm. just completed. Yeah, yeah. You see, and he had all of this in his mind, and I realized that he was, you know, kind of in a league of his own. And he waxed poetic on that last evening out of his life. He said, you know, among the Hawaiians, there are many people who call themselves kupuna, that means elder, and there are some who are called kahuna, that means expert. But in in fact, you know. Nobody carries the knowledge that I have. It's mine. It's my burden to carry it alone. And he looked very wistful, and he said, you know, in many ways, I'm the last elder, the last Hawaiian elder. And although he never would have said that in public, uh, I did include that in the book because those were his direct words. And I know that will probably irritate some Hawaiians because, you know, one of the tricky things about Hawaii is that until Kamehameha, there was no place called Hawaii. There was Hawaii Island, there was Maui Island, there was Molokai, there was Lanai, Oahu, uh, Kauai, and so forth and so on. There was no unity among these islands. Every island had their own paramount chief, and they all had their chiefly families, all of whom were constantly at war with each other. You know, So you know, there really was no place called Hawaii, and in many ways it's still like that today. You know, There are still people uh, who have bits and pieces of the old knowledge and, you know, they share a little bit within their families, but they're very protective of their knowledge. And Makua, I'm sure, was, was criticized by the Hawaiian community for sharing his knowledge with outsiders. But, you know, it's always that way. My wife, Jill, was in, in uh, treatment with a Hawaiian kohuna la'aula pa'au named Papa Henry O'Wai, who was a herbalist kohuna. 
for the last years of his life, who passed at 94. And, you know, he, you know, said that he'd been criticized by the Hawaiians for sharing his knowledge with outsiders. And he looked at my wife and said, you know, I have a grandson who has red hair and white skin and green eyes. Does that mean I can't talk about my knowledge with my grandson, my own grandson? So there was this understanding in Makua that, you know, as he said, you know, there's a chapter in the in the book called The Ancestral Grand Plan. And this is something he talked about occasionally. And then towards the end of his life, he, uh, he brought it forward with great detail. And I'll share a little bit about it with you because you're obviously in touch with the ancestors. <laughs> He would have loved your invocation at the beginning of the, of the talk that we're having together. You know, what he said was this, that the plan, the ancestral grand plan, is as much of the divine purpose as can be brought into expression upon this planet at any one time. The one thing that he felt humanity needs to know today is that there is an ancestral grand plan, one that's definitely working out through all the world's happenings, and through that all that has happened in humanity's historical past as well. And because of this, we can be, be assured that everything is right on track. That's, he used this statement a lot. Now, he felt that from the perspective of the average person who thinks in terms of earthly happiness, the ancestral plan should be something joyful, as well as something that makes material life easier. But from the perspective of those of us who've moved into the spiritual hierarchy, and that includes all of us who are shamanic practitioners, in my opinion, um, the plan involves creating those circumstances that will raise and expand the consciousness and, uh, and awareness of humankind itself, because only this will enable all of us to discover the spiritual values that will allow us to make the needed changes to our own character of our own free will. Now, he felt that it would be these circumstances alone that would produce the betterment of the individual, the family, the culture, the environment, accompanied by a continuing unfolding of spiritual recognition. He felt that the wonder and the immensity of the drama unfolding in the universe is proof of its reality. And that, you know, as human beings, our individual grasp of this is very small, but it's a firm guarantee of our essential divinity and of our own divine nature. Now, in talking about the vision in this plan, I assume that this is of interest to uh, our listeners. You know, he said, there's something most important that the world, both Western and indigenous, needs to comprehend. He said the vision itself and by association the ancestral grand plan cannot be appropriated by any one group or culture. The vision lies ever ahead of each aspirant once they step up to become a member of the spiritual hierarchy that serves as an evolutionary stairway. Now, he talked about a lot of stuff with, rep with, with re reference to this. So I asked him to say more about the plan one evening when we were having dinner in a hotel restaurant. And this is what he said. He said, the plan represents a united effort by the collective planetary spiritual hierarchy. It was originally initiated by and is now supported by the ancestors and is designed to expand the consciousness of our children, our society, as well as humanity as a whole. And the plan has two initial goals. The first goal is the expansion of each individual's horizons of thought 
as well as the increasing and strengthening of our spirituality, our self-assurance, and our knowledge at all levels. This is necessary in order to clear up certain areas of doubt, and in his opinion, doubts are formidable adversaries to all of us because they keep us in confusion and create separation. And, you know, this brings up the masters of deception, and we can talk about them in a minute. But, you know, Makua would, would shout, you know, with great glee, if you doubt, you're out. <laughs> you know, that was his, one of his faves. The second goal of the plan, he continued, is to more closely link all of our spiritual elders with each other, with our family members, with our communities, and with the workers in the world. It's about creating connection rather than separation. And to this end, he felt that all of our elders, both indigenous and Western, have to bring their personal groups of family members, students, spiritual aspirants, and colleagues into connection with each other. He felt that this needs to be done objectively, of course, subjectively at the psychological level, intuitively at the spiritual level, and eventually he felt it would take place telepathically. You know, and once we step up to become members of this spiritual hierarchy, our responsibilities include discovering what it is that we're meant to bridge into this world. And this is in addition to the gifts that we're here to offer, in addition to our life roles and our own personal growth as an immortal embodied soul, etc., etc., in addition to our lessons that we're here to work on. This is about each of us clarifying and refining the vision, for the vision itself permeates all of us, and it evolves and changes even as we grow and change ourselves. You know, nothing is set in stone, not scripture, not sutras, and not ceremony. And this brings up the most important point, which I usually throw in here. You know, from my work as an anthropologist, I've lived among uh, 12 different tribal groups, not visited, lived among, mostly in Africa. And I discovered that, you know, the technology of transcendence that they developed across time, and this goes back into the Stone Age, represents a kind of collective uh, planetary uh, possession, really, possessed by all people everywhere. And it was, it was always felt that each new generation had the responsibility, McCall would say the Kuliana, to perpetuate and refresh a continually recreated body of technique, even adding to and changing the accumulating hoard of treasure and practice. Because it was this way that the path, the shaman's path, the mystic path, really, always remained vital and meaningful to those who walked it as they traveled across time. And so that means that, you know, there is no right way or wrong way. You know, we all know teachers who are rather autocratic who say you have to do it this way. This is the only way it can be done. If you do it any other way, you're, you're, it's wrong. Well, that's a very nice theory. Unfortunately, it's in error, and it's in contrast to uh, the indigenous perception that this vision belongs to all of us in every tradition. And I think this is very important to understand. <laughs> yeah, you've noticed, Christine, that when I, when I start to talk, it is not too difficult for me to go on talking. I, I should pause once in a while so you can slip in a question <laughs> or a comment. That's all right. Go ahead and finish your your thought. Well, I know that one of the things that you wanted to talk to me about were the masters of deception, because you had somebody on recently, and I've forgotten who it is now. Because it I was Paul Levy, and he was talking about his book, Dispelling Watiko. And he had commented to me that you had emailed him 
um, sharing that the Hawaiian, traditional Hawaiians had a similar concept and uh, of evil. That's um, right. It, I probably it, picked it, up... Aipa? Yeah, I probably picked up your email blast that you sent out about that show. And I, I may have been on the road. I may have been here. I don't know where the hell I was. You know, I've just returned from three weeks. And I was just, you know, for me, what I what I see working with people is that that this these old ideas of what evil is uh, are, is a profound distraction from the very things that you're talking about and from from how people are going to participate. And so one of the things I've been doing on the show this year is is challenging and questioning people's. Um, understanding of evil as this thing over there that they're fighting against, which seems well, The interesting thing <laughs> about the deceivers, and yeah. McCoy is very reluctant to talk about them. He only mentioned it once, and he mentioned it sort of by mistake in, in part of a conversation. It's in one of the last chapters of the book, which is titled In Becoming Gods, which is what he felt we're in the process of becoming. Uh, that that is our destiny as we travel across time, to become creator gods. Anyway, in talking about the masters of deception, one of the important things that I learned from my spirit teacher is that the deceivers are not spirits. They're thought forms Mm -hmm. that reside within the human mind, and they're sort of inorganic life forms that reside in the solar system at large that were kind of an accident, an evolutionary accident, before the Sophia, some people call it the Sophia or Gaia. I use the Gnostic term, the Sophia, before she solidified into this planet, which is and will ever be her physical body. Now, as you know, the Gnostics were, Gnosis means derived and direct experience. The Gnostics were mystics, and in this sense, they were shamans in every sense of the word. They were the Uh, university professors of the ancient world for a thousand years until the Christians killed them all. Not a very Christian thing to do, but I don't know, maybe it is a Christian thing to do. At any rate, the the Sophia was a being which is called an ion, spelled A-E-O-N. The ions are great godlike creator beings that reside in the pleroma, which is at the core of each galaxy. Now, science tells us that there's a black hole in the center of our galaxy, and that may be. This is the pleroma, where the ions reside, and they dream. And they dream the entire galaxy into being. Well, the Sophia, who is definitely female, had the dream of what the Greeks called the anthropos. And she emerged from the safety of the pleroma and and flowed out into the arms of the galaxy, which they called the Kanoma, she flowed out into the arms of the galaxy as a river of light. She didn't come out as a super goddess looking like humans. She came out as a river of light. And as a creator being, she came into relationship with our star, the sun. And she solidified into a planet, the planet Earth which is her physical body, and of course the soul, the world soul at the center of this world, in fact in the biosphere of this world, everywhere in this world, is her spiritual aspect, the Sophia, the world soul. Well, the deceivers were kind of an accident, evolutionary accident, before she she actually resolved herself to become a planet. And the, arch, the, the, um, the Gnostics called them the Archons, 
And they, we pick up their knowledge about them in the Nag Hammadi Library and the codices that were found in Egypt in the 1940s. They were the last Gnostic texts that they managed to preserve before the Christians annihilated them. And a lot of the writers about the Gnostic Gospels ignore this material completely because it sounds like science fiction. But in fact, the word archon comes from the Greek word first, or from the beginning. And they're defined as inorganic species produced by the impact of the Sophia upon elementary matter before Sophia turned into the Earth. They're essentially cyborgs which inhabit the solar system at large, who excel in the psychotechnology of virtual reality. They intrude upon humanity by psychic stealth, and they propagate the ideological virus of redemptive religion. See, this is what Christianity is. It's a redemptive religion. Uh, we could talk about that, but it takes us deep into the negative polarity, so maybe we won't. But they're sort of intrapsychic forces that exaggerate human error beyond the scale of correction. And the French writer Jacques Vallée wrote a book about them called The Masters of Deception. Now, the interesting thing about them is that they're not real spirits. They're mental parasites that exist as thought forms within the human mind. And then they tend to take several forms. They're the embryonic ones, which people call ETs, the ones with the big heads and the big eyes and the little bodies, right, the greys. This is who the ETs really are. They're archons. And then there's the Lord Archon, who is supposedly taken the form of a lion's body with a reptile's head. Boy, nothing shamanic there, is there? Mm -hmm. Well, the Archon, the Lord Archon, is what the Gnostics called the Demiurge. The Demiurge. And the Demiurge, if I were to define the Demiurge for you, um, it, he, Demiurge literally means half-powered. And the Demiurge is called that because he can originate nothing, but can only imitate that which already exists. Mm -hmm. The leader of the Archons is also known as Samael, or Yaldabaoth, a pseudo-deity who claims to be the creator of the material world and demands slavish obedience from his creatures. He's identical with the biblical father god, Yahweh, Jehovah. Now, this is shocking in a way because it reveals that Yahweh, Jehovah, who is also the one that the Christians call God and the one that the Muslims call Allah, is actually the Demiurge. He's actually the Lord Archon who has been working against humanity since the very beginning. These archons are fed by the belief systems of those who believe in them. This is what feeds them. If people cease to believe them, they believe in them, they would cease to exist. And that in includes the Father God, who's caused so much trouble uh, for the last 3,000 years. I mean, this is incredible when you think about it. But these archons, they themselves are not evil, but they exist within the human minds. They're, they're ensconced deeply in the negative polarity, and they encourage humans to go ever more deeply into the negative polarity until they reach a point where they can no longer self-correct. And then we step across a threshold. And if we do, we step into the realm of evil. You see, this was humanity's great sin. We created evil in the tapestry of the spirit world. 
Evil didn't exist there until we created it. But we had help. We had help. And without going political, it's not too difficult to see that an archon was sitting astride the American presidency between 2000 and 2008. Because if you look at the Bush presidency and all of his Darth Vader advisors, I mean, these guys were deeply, deeply, deeply in the negative polarity. And in the process, they bankrupted the Treasury and got us into two wars with, without end. And hundreds of thousands of people were killed. That's what's called the archontic influence. And this is probably what your your friend was talking about when he was talking about the wetical. Um, this this field of negativity that exists within the human mind. I've learned, Christina, by the way, I don't talk about them at workshops, because if you talk about them at workshops, um, 25 people in a workshop group, a collective turning of our attention towards the towards the deceivers, and that will attract them. And they get into my workshops and mess around with them sometimes. Right. So let's actually, because um, we only have a few more minutes here, what is what would be the basic like a basic principle a basic practice i guess to um make one's mind not food <laughs> for the deceivers i mean it seems to me this is what the mystery schools have been at least in part about is how do you be unavailable well first of all i think you have to know who you are makura said the first two questions are who are you and where are you and most of us don't have a clue who we are. For example, the Hawaiians, as well as the Lakota and the Cherokee and the Inuits and the Voodoo people and, and the Shwa, they all understood that we have not one but three distinct souls. And how those souls function and come together is to understand the self, how the self is put together. Most of us don't have a clue in our society. Even those people who practice soul retrieval, you know, they are very inadequately prepared on the whole to deal with the fact that we actually have three distinct souls. And knowing which soul has been damaged and which soul has been diminished, I think is part of the key to being able to do effective soul retrieval. Now, in terms of, of protection, once the, the archons have been seen, once you know who they are and how they operate, they're over. It's done. You know, they won't mess with you anymore. Uh, power animals, you know, power animal protection is, is useful to some extent, but really it, it requires developing the mental soul, which Freud called ego and Jung called conscious mind. But it's actually much more than that. Your mental soul is the aspect of you that thinks, analyzes, integrates, practices discernment. That's very important in dealing with archontic influence. And it's your inner decision maker, your inner chief, your inner CEO. And the decisions that it makes are what steer us successfully or unsuccessfully through life based on the convictions and beliefs that it holds to be true. So if you feel that there is some fatherly monogod who lives on a planet and works in mysterious ways, who is guiding you and taking care of you, this is the first deception from the deceivers. Uh, your god self is actually your higher self, what the Hawaiians call Omakua, your oversoul. This is the one who listens to your prayers, works in mysterious ways, and sends occasional messengers to Earth, us, who usually get treated very badly. <laughs> but, you know, understanding who you are as well as where you are is part of the key to this. Because once the archons have been seen, it's over. And they'll go play with somebody else who's more vulnerable to them. I will add, though, that McCool was quite aware of the fact that psychics who channel are particularly vulnerable to them. 
because archons live in the same area that psychics operate in. You know, we could call the physical world uh, level one. We could call the mental, emotional, energetic, psychic world level two. The spirit world is level three. It's a completely separate sphere from the psychic world. And the archons, the masters of deception, do not live in the spirit world. They live in the mental, emotional world. And so, as McCoy said, psychics who channel, who are not adept at checking their sources, can be the source of incredible misinformation. Mm-hmm. And all of us know examples of this. Yeah. 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 It's interesting well, to hey, think about and talk just, about, isn't just it? Just like a minute. So, is there anything you'd like to say in closing here today? Well, I think part of our, our goal here is, is um, to develop integrity. Um, integrity is different from morality. We've had enough morality. You know, morality involves people inflicting their belief systems on other people, making them wrong and saying, if you're going to be right, you've got to believe what we believe. That's morality. You know, what we really need is integrity. We need ethics, an ethical system. Um, and it's up to us to develop that. There doesn't seem to be any innate moral or ethical force which is programmed into us genetically. It seems to be the soul's responsibility to develop develop this during life. And this seems to be what our major path through life is all about. How's that? Thank you. Thank you, (laughs) Hank. That's beautiful. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you for, um, well, thank both of you, you and Makua. Thank you both for your connection that has, um, you know, brought us the bowl of light and whatever else you're going to continue to give us. <laughs> oh, he'd be so delighted, you know. It's a, it's a shame that you didn't get to meet him. He did come to Oregon on occasion. He was one of the ones who was dealing with the star kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So but for no, those of you that want to connect with Hank or um, click the link and buy the book, etc., you can find Hank at sharedwisdom.com. And you can email Hank at hank at sharedwisdom.com. And I'd like to take a moment here uh, before closing, not only to thank you, Hank and Makua, but all of your ancestors for dreaming of a better future that you could be here with us at this most auspicious time. And I give thanks to the ancestors who gathered around us here today. And thanks to the earth below, uh, to Gaia to the sky above, and to the heart in the center that unites us all. Um, May we find uh, true connections and support each other in becoming uh, the people we were truly born to be. So, for those of you who got confused by the last two shows, I just want to clarify real quickly that we did rerun shows that were recorded last year because I was away at a shamanic conference in BC, which was fabulous, and I have um, great gratitude to the Circle of the Great Mystery for hosting another excellent conference. Um, Hank, by the way, you should put in a proposal next year and come and join us. It's really an amazing amount of fun. Anyway, pardon? Get them to invite me. That's my I protocol. I will. I will. And then, um, so I just want to clarify for everyone that Masks of Illusion is happening this year in August, um, 11 through 16. And that's what we were talking about in that show was just about um, the four-year program. So people have sent me emails a little bit confused. Um, and it's in the website, and you can register through the website. So sorry if I confused people. And just to let you know, next week we're going to be exploring a question 
um, a client asked me, which was basically, when do I know I need shamanic healing and when should I be looking for something else? Um, <laughs> it was a very, very, um, very clear and accurate question. So we're going to be talking about that. Um, when do we need different types of healing? What might that be? And when do we need to just hitch up our britches and do what only we can do for ourselves? So we'll talk about that a little bit next week. Um, so thank you, everyone. Have an excellent week. And uh, may you know in your hearts the true spirit of aloha.